Hello everyone and welcome to episode 1 of the Rebound with Resilience podcast with me, Kevin Wee. Very, very, very excited to be able to launch this podcast. I initially wanted to do a video podcast, you know, sometime in June, but I saw a friend of mine, you know, a good friend of mine, her name is Ray. She started a podcast called Fridays with Ray, you know, but I saw a podcast, I was inspired and I just thought, you know, why not just start it first, talk to this phone and in the future when I'm a bit less broke, I can start a video podcast. So yeah, episode one will be me just sharing about my purpose and my personal story. You know, why resilience and mental health are topics that are deeply personal to me, why I'm so passionate about it, and how I eventually ended up in public speaking, in training and development. So I know a lot of you probably have heard my personal story before, but this time it will really be more details. I'll be very open, very vulnerable, very raw. And I just hope that by going to more details, I can relate to some of you guys. Maybe you can take away some lessons. And if you're inspired, there'll be a bonus as well. And just a disclaimer, I'm not sharing my story to seek sympathy. I don't need sympathy. I'm sharing it because it's just a way to document my life and look back with gratitude. At the same time, like I mentioned before, if anyone is facing similar issues or can relate to me, I'll be very, very glad that you know, this could impact your life in some way. Alright, so let's get straight into it. Um, let's start from who I was maybe as a as a student. So growing up as a student, I think I was very focused on my studies and my sports. I grew up in a very conservative environment. My parents were always there for me, very sheltered. I didn't really have to worry about a lot of other things other than just my grade. Yeah, so I was, I was actually quite a secure kid. I think the, the first time I started to be aware of mental health conditions or rather the impact of emotions on mental health was in SEC2. So in SEC2, my brother was in primary six and before his PSLE, he had a friend that always came to our house, right? He was, he was jovial, he was laughing. He was just a happy-go-lucky guy. I remember him. And, and I, a couple of months before the PSLE, I actually stopped seeing him coming. And the next time I saw him was on the PSLE results day. And I opened the door to the toilet and I saw him actually huddled in a corner. He was on the phone and he was just a completely different person from who I remembered. His face was just distraught. I was devastated. He was on the phone. Like, I actually said that, you know, uh, please, please, please don't, don't, don't scold me. You know, my, 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 my life is over. You know, I thought to myself, like, why should a 12-year-old kid feel that his entire life ahead of him is over just because of a couple of letters on a piece of paper? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. But the irony is that I was like that. You know, I was a typical, without even realizing it, grades had a more had a more significant impact on me than I realized. I was a typical type A personality. I was obsessed in my work. I was competitive. I hate losing. You know, one of those people that you probably hate and everyone hates, you know, the guy that always fights for his marks and cannot let anything go. And that was me growing up. And I think that worked well for me because like, I didn't really, I like to believe that I have some intelligence. So I did well in my studies. I did well in my sport. And I managed DSA into a good junior college, uh, Raffles Junior College, now it's called RIJC. So that was really a time where I started to develop like a inflated sense of self-worth. You know, where I thought that I was, suddenly thought that I was better than other people, even though I didn't openly admit it. 
and you know my friends will say that hey Kevin you don't need to study for O levels you can just get straight into Raffles so it kind of gets to you so I was pretty pretty happy there and as much as I tried to differentiate myself as much as I tried not to be a mugger okay I remember wearing my, my uniform I never buttoned my my shirt you know I would never wear my badge my hair was always ruffled you know my mom called me a drug addict every time I go to school in the morning you know even though I tried to be different looking back I was a typical mugger you know I would just go back I would just spend all my time studying or playing sports I did nothing else I would run for my recess break to eat in five minutes so that I can more time to study I think um, you don't really know it until fast forward to the A-levels couple of months before the A-levels I for the first time in my life I started to face a little bit of anxiety and I didn't really know how to handle it because up until then I haven't really faced anything that bothered me that much but the accumulation of just that pressure to perform by people say that your A-levels is everything you know you don't have A-levels you, you only got O-level cert your dreams your identity what other people thought about you your grades everything kind of forms your identity and you realize that there's this sense that you must do well in order to be successful so all that kind of played into my mind before my A-levels and I remember very clearly as well that I had a neighbor that was doing renovation. It's a couple of months before A-levels was doing renovation and the entire room above me was shaking, okay? It was vibrating. My whole room was vibrating, okay? I was vibrating. It was impossible for me to balance chemical equations or differentiate my math, okay, when I was shaking. So, you know, that really bothered me. I had to find different ways to study and my room was like my safe spot. I've never ever seriously studied anywhere else but my room. So all these factors actually led to my anxiety building up. And I remember before my first A-level paper, right, I couldn't sleep the night before. Okay, I couldn't sleep and I've never ever not slept before in a paper. And the next day before the paper itself, I remember going to the toilet. I still remember the toilet that I went into. I prayed a very, very desperate prayer i locked myself in a cubicle and i just told god like please just help me to get past this first paper it was not a prayer of conviction it was a prayer of desperation and then i went into the we call it winter wonderland it was a very cold air-conditioned hall so i went into the hall i went to my place and the first thing i realized was that, that there was this aircon draft this cold wind from my left blowing against my face and I'm one guy that is asthmatic. Okay, I cannot stand the cold. So obviously I was very thrown off, right? And I, and I just tried to tahan for a while, but I couldn't. I raised my hand. I said, I need to move. So when everyone was starting doing that paper, I was still this joke. I was still this guy taking up his, his desk and his chair and like shifting into the other corner of the room, like one corner of the hall. And everyone, everyone was probably thinking like, who is this joker? <laughs> so that's so why I was moving there. I only started the paper like five minutes after the paper started or 10 minutes and for some reason right like I just couldn't focus there was this light coming in I was distracted by the light uh, on the side of me I was distracted by the sounds and it wasn't really the sounds it was just that my mind was in a very over hypersensitive state so because of that I didn't manage to complete the paper and 
I was actually quite sad. I was quite sad because that was the start of my A-levels and I also had the fear. I was more afraid of the fear. I was wondering like, how can I carry on? I have like 20 other papers and this is not the state to be in to finish all my other papers. So with that fear in mind, I actually went back home and my dad could see that when he picked me up, he could see that I was visibly shaken and he tried to comfort me, but it was very difficult. Uh, so to speed up the story a little bit, uh, to my math A-level paper, it's a three-hour paper. Paper one is three hours. Paper two is three hours. And I went to the paper. I sat down. And I just had a complete mental block. The best way to describe it is like oxygen being cut off your brain. You just sit down. You stare at a question. You know that you have done the question like multiple times, but you cannot write anything other than copying down the question. So I just copied down the question. I went to the toilet to just sit down for 30 minutes. I came back and man, I tell you, coming out of that paper, it was probably the start of a very, very long battle with my mental health. You know, because all the thoughts started to come in. You know, the thoughts that, what would I do? What would my friends think about me? What would my family think about me? And what's problem with my future? How can I pursue my dreams when I film the most important exam of my life? So all these thoughts were just bombarding me. And it was very hard to recover from it because I know, I mean, prior to this, I never faced anything like this before. So the same thing actually happened for paper two. It was also a three-hour paper. And I also handed up blank papers. So I know that I was going to get a U for math, which is like the worst grade. And I still remember the exact date. It was on 9 November 2012. And I came back home. I was completely devastated, right? If you put myself in, into my shoes and try and imagine, right? Like, of course, grades mean nothing to me now. But at that point in my life, right? It was everything. I studied for 12 hours every single day, 14 hours every single day for like three, four months just for the A-levels because I want to get it over with. I wanted to pursue my dreams after that. But everything just came crashing down, right? My greatest advantage actually became my greatest weakness, right? Because my identity was built on variables. My identity was built on what other people thought about me, my grades, my achievements. And all of a sudden, I didn't have this anymore. So I just felt very lost. I just felt my identity crumble. And it's just very devastating. You know, and I actually had... I came back home, I was seated on my bed and I'll never forget this, this exact moment where it's about 6.30, my mom actually came, uh, the moment she came back from work, she came straight into my room, she knelt down on the floor in front of me, she held my hand and she prayed, she prayed for me. It's the first time ever I heard my mom pray because, you know, we grew up in a very conservative uh, Christian upbringing. So usually my dad leads the prayers, but it's the first time I actually heard my mom pray. And you know, they say like parents, they cry three kinds of tears, tears of joy, tears of shame, and tears of sorrow. And this was the first time in my life I saw my mom cry tears of sorrow. You know, she just held my hand and she just teared. She said, please, like, I apologize, like, please God, like, please, please forgive me for putting pressure on my son. 
you know, please take away his burden and put it on me instead. Uh, how much pain she was in, how much pain I was in. And that moment really changed me. You know, I, I till today, I still remember that defining moment in my life. It was really a start of a long battle. So, you know, even though, uh, of course, at that point it was tough, but because of my mom's help, because of her comfort, I thought about giving up my A-levels. I thought about retaking it. But with her encouragement, I managed to take some medication and then I managed to skip through the rest of my A-levels, the rest of my papers. It was very, very interesting. I actually had to ask for a separate room in Raffles. So I actually went to this isolated room. It's just me at one table and a fan. So it was very funny because I was doing the paper and, and I couldn't focus because the fan was very loud. So I asked the invigilator to like off the fan. And halfway it would get very hot, so I asked her to on the fan again. So she was just going in and out, stick on and on the, off the fan. But I just like that, I just survived. You know, I don't know how I did it, but I just survived and I scraped through the rest of my papers. But the moment I ended my last paper, I thought that everything would be fine. But I was horribly wrong. Right, the moment I ended my last paper was really when the battle really began. And the same day, I A-levels was over. I told my parents that, you know, I still having this, I'm still having this like thoughts. I still can't get these thoughts out of my head. So they say they said to me, don't worry about it, Kevin, your levels is over, you know, the stress should be over. You know, they took me to some massage parlor in East Point. And I remember a guy from um China actually massaged my head. <laughs> I still remember. Yeah, so after the massage I actually felt okay. So I went back, I took uh of course I rested, I slept. And I'll never forget. Another defining moment in my journey where I woke up in the middle of the night in cold sweat and my body was cold, uh, my shirt was wet and all of a sudden this thought actually entered my mind, right? That it would maybe it would be better if I just take my own life. And the first time a suicidal thought actually came to me, right? I was shocked. It's as a cold shiver actually ran down my spine. You know, when you write that in compose, you don't really understand. But when you experience it, right, literally a, a shiver runs from your head all the way down to your tailbone. And what scared me is this, right? What scared me is that I had a suicidal thought and that I had no control over it. And the second thing that just scared me more is that I had, I had no control over my thoughts. So, of course, the most immediate thing I did was to wake up my mom and and tell her about it. And when I told her about it, the reaction that she had, right, was exactly the same reaction as me. You know, she also shivered and she hugged me very closely and said, Kevin, please don't say such things, you know. If I, and she just comforted me and she, yeah, so it was just a very scary moment for both of us. And of course, she told me to go back and sleep, but I couldn't go back and sleep. I just couldn't. And so the next morning, I woke up my, the last desperate attempt I had was I went to Bullet Reservoir, I tried to run it, run it off, but it didn't work. You know, I still, had, I still had that thought in my head. So I came back home, I told my parents that I need to go to IMH. And you need to send me to IMH because I can't control my thoughts. So initially they were very stunned, obviously, because they had no knowledge of mental health. I mean, their son, their perception of me was this perfect child that grew up, very resilient, very confident. And for me to like do 180 degrees turn was very shocking to them. Like they, 
And so they, they try to convince me not to go, but I told them that I need to go. So eventually we did go. So here's where it gets, it gets interesting, right? So I went there, then I went into the room. Uh, there was this, it was not a, it was, it was not a psychiatrist, it was just a general G, a GP. There was this Indian national with huge eyes. So his eyes were huge, you know, and he stared at me. It was so intimidating. I shared with him my story. I just felt that he wasn't listening to me. And he looked at me with these large eyes and he said, Why are you depressed? Your exams are over. And he just said that, right? And of course, I mean no disrespect to people that have an accent, but I'm just sharing it like it is, right? And at that point of time when I was depressed, I was just so pissed off. You know, here I am thinking about taking my life and here you are challenging me. And I, man, I tell you, I never cursed, but I just dropped all the F-bombs you can think of, man. All the accumulated F-words, right? I just spam everything in my head. You know, so <laughs> this is my last dish attempt to, you know, tell him that I was suffering. So anyway, uh, that didn't work out. He just gave me some medication and I went back home. And before I went back home, uh, me and my parents actually went to have lunch at Xingxiong. It's the Xingxiong by the Bedok Reservoir. Okay. And again, this is another moment that will forever be kind of etched in my memory. I remember I was eating lunch across the table and my parents were just telling me that it's going to be fine. Everything is going to be fine. You know, you're just going to take the medication and you're going to go back to normal. And in my head, I was actually visualizing my funeral with very with super clarity, like I was visualizing like, who was coming, my classmates, and I just felt this sense of hopelessness, that sense that my death is imminent, that there's nothing else that can save me. And I can't really describe how that feeling is, but, you know, it's just this sense of hopelessness, la, and that my, it's not possible for my parents to understand. So of course I went back home, I tried to believe that it could get better, but no, it just got worse. So I remember, eventually, I started to, every single thought that I had was thoughts about my death. So I just start thinking of really gruesome stuff, like myself being chopped up into many pieces, of myself being like drowned. Like every single thought was of my death. It's just a constant onslaught of like, death thoughts every single thought was linked to my death and it got worse to the point it got so bad to the point that i just walked around the house i started to walk around the house with my hands on my head and started shouting and started like telling my whole family that i'm going to die and it was very very difficult because my, my siblings were younger than me and they were very traumatized they didn't know what was going on my parents didn't know what was going on so eventually this actually led to, till today, I believe that's the most scary moment in my life. It actually led to the point where I had a complete void of emotions. So it came to a point where the thoughts were so vigorous and I eventually lost sense of my emotions. So I just felt like I was a zombie. I just felt like my spirit being sucked out of me. I was like just an empty shell. And until today, I realized that I, I, I believe that the only thing worse than feeling fear, the only thing worse than feeling that pain is not being able to feel anything at all. And 
Of course, when I look back, I now understand that this is called the black hole of depression. You know, some people describe it as, you know, this complete hollowness and it's not uncommon. But back then, I didn't know what it was. But, you know, that happened to me and I, and I just, wow, that was crazy, man. I, I just, I, in that state, I believed with 1000% possibility that there was no way out for me, that I was definitely going to die. And I just felt so sorry for my parents, you know. So anyway, I told my parents that like, I, I'm, it's over for me. And, uh, you know, I need to be, I need something to do something drastic. So they actually Googled and then they eventually brought me to a private hospital. At this private hospital, I went into the room and this doctor was different. This doctor was interesting. He, he was different from the, the first doctor at IMH. He was a psychiatrist. He looked at me. I shared my story. And I remember the first thing I told him was, this is going to sound weird, but I'm a Christian and I'm not supposed to be feel this way. I'm not supposed to want to take my own life, but I can't help it. Can you please help me? Because I ran out. I, I don't know what to do anymore. And he just listened to me for like one, two minutes. And he said, okay, I need to hospitalize you. You know, that's what he said. So he hospitalized me. He gave me like injection to tranquilize me. I fell asleep. I knocked out. And when I woke up again, surprisingly, I actually felt myself, the thoughts actually gone. I felt the thoughts being cleared. So for a brief moment, I actually felt some hope. And I was very hopeful, you know, that, that feeling that my thoughts were being cleared. It was still there. I was still aware that I had a long battle to go. But for that brief moment, my thoughts were cleared. So the funny thing is, I got up and I told the doctor that I want to go to my prom. So the next day, I actually went to my prom. I went to my JC prom and I wore like beach shorts and a shirt. Yellow beach shorts and a white shirt. And I remember I went to prom. Uh, it was very funny, you know, I, I took photos and everything. But the moment I went back, so after the prom when everyone was taking, was having fun going out, you know, I actually went back to the hospital. And yeah, pretty much, you know, I thought that things would get better. But I was, I couldn't be more wrong. If things were, it was really the start of a very, very long battle with my mental health. And even after I was discharged, the months that followed, that was in December 2012, Jan 2013, February 2013 was probably the worst months of my life. Yeah, I would say in terms of my mental health, in terms of dealing with my thoughts, those months were really bad. Like every single day I'll wake up with suicidal thoughts. I would sometimes intentionally um, climb on the ledge and then my mom would scream at me and say, Kevin, stop it. You know, I would, I would just roll around in bed. I would refuse to go out. I, I isolated myself. A lot of my friends, inverted commas, left me. I don't blame them because like they didn't know how to help me and I also didn't want to reach out to them because I felt embarrassed. So I just went into this hole and I really struggled. I was taking some medication, some antipsychotics, some antidepressants, but yeah, every day was tough. I had difficulty sleeping. I woke up at like 4 or 5 a.m. every day, even at like 1-2 hours of sleep. And I'll hear the stupid bird, you know the bird that goes, Ooh, stupid bird. I will hear that bird at 5 a.m. in the morning, all right? And just get more anxious. And it wasn't just depression. I also had a lot of anxiety. So anxiety is like, it's like feeling in your chest. Like, I mean, you can describe it as like ends in your chest. It just expands in your chest. And it's just this horrible feeling where you have this adrenaline pumping and you just can't stop moving around because 
uh, you just feel so like you're going to explode. So I was facing all these things, right? And during those times, uh, I tell you, uh, I really begged with God. You know, I, I spiritually, mentally, I was fighting every day. I was, I, I, I negotiated with God. I was negotiating with God. I said, God, just take away, like, give me any form of physical pain. I would gladly train, change it. You can cut off my leg, whatever. But I would gladly trade any form of physical pain for this emotional pain. You know, and I meant it. You know, and my faith was also a double-edged sword because I felt that God was punishing me for for all my inverted commas, my sins that I committed in the past. And now yeah, it was interesting. I think I can take a step back and talk about depression because depression is quite a misunderstood topic. The best way I can describe it to you guys in an analogy, right, is like, it's really like a virus. Okay, if your mind is a computer, then depression is a virus that attacks your mind. You know, and it shuts down your mechanism for resilience. So as human beings, right, I believe that one of our greatest capacity, one of our greatest ability, right, is the ability to overcome, the ability to go through the toughest odds, right, and still come out strong, still come out um, better as better human beings. You know, but the devastation of depression, right, is that it shuts down the mechanism by which we be resilient. So it's really like attacking the processor of a computer. And without the processor, the computer can't work. So... Depression is like, you know, it's like a psychosomatic disorder, which means that it's, it's not just a psychological thing. Yes, there are psychological factors that led to it, but once I was in it, it was also a physical illness, which means that it's a chemical imbalance, right? That's causing me all these thoughts. These are not necessarily me. It's the chemistry in my mind that's causing me to think all these thoughts. You know, in the same way, you can't tell like someone who's sprained an ankle, you can't tell him to just walk faster and get over it. You can't really tell someone who's depressed to just get over it. That was depression. You know, and I battled with it for, for three months. It was a very long process. And despite these months of battling, I did eventually recover. And I want to share with you guys my recovery process. And maybe you can take away some tips that are not just useful if you're having a mental condition, but also useful in general, right? Just to overcome any form of challenge. One of my first turning points was when, before my A-level results day, the day before, I texted someone. And someone was someone that was, I looked up to, very important to me. I can't reveal who it is because I'm not sure whether he wants me to share. But he was someone very important to me. He really shaped my years growing up. I looked up to him. And I remember going to him. I said, it was a coffee shop that I met him. I said that, so-and-so, you know, I have something to tell you. I hope that you don't judge me. You know, I'm really sorry if uh, I failed you. And I just, and before I, I remember, before I could tell him, right, he told me that, oh, don't tell me you, you got a mental problem. You know, at that point, I thought, wow, she is going to judge me, right? But the interesting thing is this, like, he told me that, well, this is so interesting. He told me that he also faced, once before, faced something very similar to me, where he actually had to stop working for almost a month or so because he couldn't take it when someone important to him actually left him, you know. And to me, right, that was not a very big thing, right? But that led him to also get into the same state as me. And he was sharing his experience. And I was just so shocked because he's, the, he's someone that I really look up to, someone that is, I see as very strong. 
And I never thought that he would be ever in a similar position to me. So when I heard that, I think it really dawned on me that, you know, it's not like you can't really judge someone just from the surface. And you never know the demons that people face in the past. You know, he told me that, Kevin, you know, don't worry about it. I understand you. And he pointed to me in the coffee shop. He pointed to every single person around. He said, the guy has problems. The guy has problems. Everyone has problems. But it's up to you now to take small steps to overcome it. It's going to be a long journey. But just take small steps. I believe that you can overcome it and chart a different path for yourself. And so, like, I wasn't fully recovered, but it was a start. You know, so from there, I really realized that, hey, you know, I was, I was quite uplifted. And then from there, I actually took very small steps. So I started to go and volunteer. I started to go to uh, hospitals to serve kids with, with uh, special needs. I started to do hydrotherapy. That means I help kids with um, water therapy. I went to volunteer in dog shelters. And wow, this is one of the biggest lessons that I've learned during that period. Like, it was really healing. Like, one of the biggest lessons I learned is that love is very, very healing. Like, it could possibly be the most powerful thing in the universe. Yeah, that, that's how powerful love is. You know, like, I... You know, when I was in the dog shelters, right? Like, I, the people that love that I felt, both from the animals and from the people that were taking care of the animals, was very unconditional, right? They didn't care about how how big, small, tall, short, ugly, you know, what colour I was, what my grades were. You know, it just gave me love as it is. And just for that moment listening to their stories, right, I forgot about my own problems temporarily. You know, I forgot about it. It was very healing. It's very therapeutic. And I remember there's this one boy. You know, his name is Raj. It was in a hospital that I always every week I would go there and I'll do stories with him. I'll tell stories to him. I would play with him. And he looked forward to me. So he actually has cerebral palsy. So he, he, he walked with a little bit of a gait. He limped a little bit. But every time I saw him, right, he would increase his stride and he would be so happy to see me. And his face would light up. And again, just for that moment, right, I, I forgot about my issues. And I realized that he didn't care. Right? He didn't care whether I get straight Fs or straight As. You know, all he cared about was that I was there, present, helping him, loving him, serving him. And I, it just dawned on me that my value is not dependent on my grades. You know, that there will be people that appreciate my value regardless of the things that I've done in the past, the failures that I've made. And all I need to do is seek out and recognize my value. So that was one of the biggest like, lessons that I've learned in my overcoming process and the biggest mindset shifts that I made, you know. So fast forward, you know, again to April, all of a sudden, okay, I had this epiphany. So I remember this day very clearly because it's it's an aha moment. Some of you might experience it before. Psychologists describe it as an aha moment where you just feel the burden being lifted. You just feel your mind suddenly clears. And, and I was just thinking about my life, right? And all of a sudden, I just thought to myself, hey, Kevin, you know, screw university, you know, screw it, you know, I heck with university, I don't need to go to university to be successful, I can just chart my own life, I can create my own value, I can be a, like, a jockey, I can breed fish, you know, I thought of all kinds of stupid ideas, but that idea, that thought, right, actually stuck with me and it helped clear my mind. 
So the funny thing is that it started to clear my mind, right? And I started to get more creative. And one day, I was actually watching YouTube videos. So I watched YouTube videos, and back then, uh, those people back then, the people that were famous, Wu Jianhao, uh, Rick Wan, you know, uh, NOC was hadn't even formed then. You know, it was the early decosh, the early YouTubers. And back then, they had like 30k, 40k subscribers. You know, so I looked at the videos, right? And all of a sudden, this thought actually came to me that I want to be a YouTuber. You know, that I'm going to share my story with the world. I want to advocate for mental health awareness. So the crazy thing is that when this thought actually came to my mind, right? Like it stayed there. The thought was like a virus. It was the opposite virus. Like I just got super energized by it. I got my adrenaline started to flow, and all these ideas actually came to me. It's I, wow. right now, right? It's it's extremely hard to describe it because uh, the best analogy I can give you is that I became like this became Superman. <laughs> you know, I just. My mind was in constant flow. I just thought of crazy ideas, and every single time, I was just writing down ideas, writing down ideas, and I managed to draft a video for uh, a four-hour video. Okay, four and a half hours. I I can't remember how long it was, but it was very long. It was just a video of me doing random stuff, you know. And I drafted it out. I thought about it. Eventually, I actually did that video. As crazy as it sounds, right? It took me almost three, two, three weeks to film it, but for some reason, I actually managed to film the video. And of course, now it's removed already, right? But the video was called Avatar We. It's quite funny, like why I call it Avatar We was because I believe that I was the savior of the world. And I'm going to take a step back and share with you what this state is, right? So this state that I was in back then, I didn't realize it, but this state that I was in is called Mania. M A N I A. You can Google it if you want, but this state essentially is opposite of depression, right? So some people should go through a mixed episode where after depression they go into mania. So that was me, right? Because of the emotional switch and imbalance, I switch over into mania, and mania is like the opposite of depression. It is like the extreme end of depression. It's like you believe that you are the invincible, that nothing can stop you. That I was going away. I was giving free money. All my personality traits were amplified. It's like Black Spider Man. You know, if you guys watch Black Spider Man, right? It's like really like Black Spider Man. So, um, yeah, pretty much. You know, I ended up doing the video, and in the video, I was just gonna tell it like it is, right? As crazy as it sounds, like I actually started a fire in my room, and I burned my eleven cert. You know, I tore my eleven cert. I burned it. I talked about my life. I talked about my experience. I wrote. I took red paint. I wrote on the wall that grades when I will never be defined by my grades. I, I sing and I dance. I did men versus wild. You know, I, I was just crazy. It was really crazy. Like I did a four hour video. I don't even remember what I did, but I released that video, and yeah, basically it got it got viral. It got uh, not really viral, but a Raffles kid, you know, burning his A level cert would be enough content to be semi viral. So that that video actually got up to like twenty thousand, twenty five thousand views before I removed it, and yeah, eventually it got featured in in the Chinese like one part. I remember they put me on the cover and said a Raffles kid actually burns A level cert. So that was a moment where it was very very. Well, I tell you guys that that was actually a moment where now thinking back, right, it was really a crazy moment in my life. For a couple of months, I was 
just in mania and I refused to believe, I refused to hear any advice. I was just stuck in my own circle, believing that that's the best way to do things. And looking back, I will never regret it because that made me who I am. That's part of my story. But it wasn't the wisest way to spread awareness. Uh, but through, through the video, right, like, a couple of things actually came out of it. Like I started to have a lot of people actually text me. There were a lot of people that were also had mental issues that texted me, that reached out to me and said, thank you for the video. Thank you for standing up for us. So interestingly enough, that's also how I met my first girlfriend or first love, if you, you want to put it that way. My mom was the one that asked me to reach out to her because she commented on my YouTube video saying that uh, she needed help for her eating disorder, that she was going to take her life and everything. So I reached out to her and I talked to her. And yeah, it didn't help that she, I found her quite cute. So in the end, we just ended up uh, together for a couple of months. So it was just a crazy couple of months was just a volatile, crazy relationship where we literally depended on each other for our survival, I would say. You know, she will just call me sometimes really late at night, like 2, 3 a.m. Sometimes we'll talk for hours because I share suicidal thoughts and and just a lot of other stuff like that. I mean, I visited her in the hospital, you know, a couple of times as well when she was hospitalized. And I understood, like, I understood that at that point, an eating disorder is really no joke. It's uh, probably, you can even say that it's depression with an added layer where you literally starve yourself to death because you think that you're overweight even though you are really, really skinny. And of course, I'm, I'm not representing, representing it fully, uh, but there's one element or one aspect of eating disorder. And it's just crazy, man. It's, I mean, because I was so close to her during that period, I could understand it emotionally. I could understand the toll that it took on her. And of course, her, the, her caregivers as well. And just to recount a story that I, I still remember, when I was in the hospital once, it was the ward where there was treated the ward that was treating people with eating disorders, right? And across the the room was this middle-aged lady. And I looked at her and she just reached out to me, right? She reached out to me with two hands and her eyes were just hauntingly hollow and she just asked, asking me for like food. And till today, I still remember that image so vividly. Right, because, wow, man, I was haunted by images. Literally sucked the life out of me, and I knew then, right, how devastating a mental condition can be, you know. And so, until today, that actually drives me. By the way, yeah, but uh, so yes, I was with, I was with, you know, her for a couple of months, and eventually we, of course, did break up because it's not sustainable. We're just imposing values on each other. But that being said, I think looking back, I don't regret it. Those memories, because it was so crazy, it was also the only time and for the first time I actually felt so emotionally connected, so interpersonally connected with another human being. And that feeling is something that I always treasure. Like, it's something that I will never forget. It has a special place in my heart. 
and it's shaming who I am today. Yeah, so and of course now she's overcome that as well. And just moved on. Lah. So yeah, I'm just very glad that then uh, of that phase in my life. But anyway, so moving on. I was in NS, so I went into NS. I was a club because I had depressed. They tried to up pass me to pass B1, but after a couple of days later they put me back to pass E because I had depression and I couldn't carry a gun. The interest the funny thing is like when I was in JC I actually wrote into MINDEF and I told them that I want to be a commando. <laughs> so I actually wrote in and said that I was surviving the cut. You know, I'll be a great commando, I love to chong and everything. And they wrote in saying they can't. Okay, and I, the, the greatest irony is that I ended up in the same camp that I sent the letter to. Okay, I sent a letter to CMPB and I ended up being a clerk in CMPB for two years. <laughs> so that was me. Uh, initially, I was very upset, but it also became quite a big blessing because it's true that, that I also came in touch with an association. I was looking out for people. I was looking out for direction. And I came across an association of people that helped me, uh, mentors that were running their own businesses, and they saw the potential in me. You know, for, I'll be forever grateful to them because I was just a crazy, you know, unrefined kid that was just coming out of my mental condition. But they didn't see me for who I am. Who I, they saw me for who I could become. And to them, I'm eternally grateful. You know, until today, I'm still with them, actually working on, on my first business. You know, so I am so grateful. And, and this gentleman, you know, his name is, his name is Hong Ming, right? He actually told me, he told me that uh, once, you know, I actually told him, and this was in the process of me overcoming, right? I actually told him that why should I gel my hair, you know, to go for business appointments? You know, if my goal is to build a society that values people for their outer appearance, not, not for their outer appearance, but for their heart, for their character, then why should I bother so much about my outer appearance? And then he just listened to me, asked me, right, Kevin, if you really believe in that cause, right, why not you just go around naked? <laughs> you just go around naked and tell people that judge me for who I am on the inside. And of course, I didn't fully understand it, but then of course, those perspectives and the support that I got from those people eventually brought me back into balance. So I went from depression to mania all the way back to balance and I realized that the, what I was doing wasn't the best way to go about spreading my vision. So in 2014, almost seven months after I started my first video, I actually took down my channel and I can say that that was the start of my recovery, really going back into balance. And so I want to take a pause here right, and just codify or, or really talk about what were the factors that led me to balance or led me to my first recovery. And I will really point them down to a couple of factors. Number one was just the unconditional love that I experienced by both of my family, from one or two close friends, from my mentors, that love that they helped me. Even my parents didn't understand fully, but they were very supportive and they were empathetic and they never once stopped believing that I would overcome it. So their faith in me in that long process really helped. I would say the second factor would be medication. I think that depression is a chemical imbalance and that in appropriate amounts and context, 
medication can help. So if you are going through a similar condition, if you, you know, if you are holding back or you have certain stigma towards taking medication, of course you can reach out and talk to me if you want to. But under certain conditions, I think that helped me for a couple of months just to alleviate the thoughts. And the last most defining factor in my recovery was a paradigm shift, which means that I had to change my mindset completely. That period that I went through completely shifted the way I view life, the way I view my grades, the way I view my identity. And I had to build my identity on my unique value instead of the variables, the societal labels and variables that were put in front of me. So that paradigm shift that I made, right, was very significant in my recovery. I would say one of the key factors has slowly shifted my mindset. Alright? So those were three factors. And after that, after army, uh, I went into university. I applied for university. Initially, I didn't get in. I got into discretionary admission because I was a tennis player. And I got into Wikimwi, it's a communication school. I remember going down for the interview and they told me like, hey, Kevin, your grades cannot make it for this course, but we saw that you have represented Singapore, we saw that you have some CCA, so we were willing to give you a chance. So tell me why we should take you in. And this was the dean of the school. And I remember telling him, I looked at him and said, look here, I have a dream. <laughs> I kid you not, that's what I said. I said, I have a dream. I have a dream that I will change Singapore. I will change the way people view failure in Singapore. I'll start a YouTube channel. I just spam him with my dreams. And for some reason, right, we can we actually like crazy people. So they took me in. So how was I like as a uni student? Right? It was very different. I was I viewed university, I viewed studies very differently. Grades no longer bothered me at all. And because of my mentors, because I already had that entrepreneurial virus kind of injected into me, my entire focus for university was to prepare myself to be an entrepreneur. You know, so I really had thoughts that I wanted to go back to school to do public speaking, to do training and development, and just share my experiences, you know, all the struggles that I had in the past, I want to go back and share. So I remember, I think at 21 years old was the time where I formally started training. I initially had some doubts, so I went to a friend, and he told me like, Kevin, think back five years ago, when you were 16 years old, what are the three biggest lessons you want to tell your 16-year-old self? And he told me to write that down. After I wrote it down, he said, he looked at it and he said, that is your credibility. You know, everyone starts out somewhere, so don't judge yourself. Just take the first step. You know, and because of that, I did take the first step. You know, I reached out to founders on LinkedIn. I just messaged them, said, hey, give me a chance to train. I have a passion. I have no experience, but I can work for a low fee first. And yeah, just that's, that's essentially how I started out training. And I remember the first time I went into schools, right? Like the entire, I can't, can't tell you the school, but the entire class just erupted. Every sentence I spoke, they would interrupt me. One guy would stand up and throw the pencil across the classroom and say, hey, you shut up. You know, so, it's so interesting, right? And then to me, you know, even though it was in such chaos, right? To me, in my mind, I was thinking, man, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And that was when I knew that I have a passion for training. That was when I, I knew that if I could take the energy and turn it into something positive, that would be so fulfilling. So I knew that the training was something that I wanted to pursue. So that is where I started to do a lot of freelance training whilst in university. I was working more than I was studying. I was building my first business as well. And so uh, I just built up my knowledge, my skill sets. 
And eventually, in my final year project, I started a campaign called Rebound with Resilience, right, which is what uh, you guys are probably familiar with. But I started out as a social campaign where I went to schools. I also worked with people who had disabilities. And these people are people whom I met through an event. These are people whom uh, deeply inspire me. You can go and check out their stories on my website. But these are people that really, really inspire me. I think their struggles are probably a lot tougher than what I had to go through. So I got them on board and I provided them opportunity to speak in schools. Uh, and yeah, we started Rebound with Resilience. So Rebound with Resilience actually went on well. And eventually I turned it into a business. I've been running it for a year. And yeah, so that's where I am now. I know it ended a bit abruptly, but yes, that's where I am now. I'm running Rebound with Resilience. All my struggles in the past has become the drive that I have to run Rebound Resilience. That's why I'm so passionate about resilience. That's why I'm so passionate about mental health because I believe there is something that students need to know. They need to know that they are not just defined by the grades. They're defined by the unique value. Um, I guess I can just conclude this podcast by sharing with you guys the three takeaways or the three lessons that I've learned in this entire process, right? My entire story and how I eventually became an entrepreneur. I just want to share with you three lessons that hopefully you can take away, that can benefit you, all right? So the first lesson, what's the first lesson? The first lesson is an answer to the question that I get a lot. That is, Kevin, how can I build my resilience? What is the one ingredient that is necessary for my resilience? And the answer to that actually lies in the definition of resilience, right? Think about it for a moment. What is it? Resilience is the ability to overcome failure or setbacks. It's the ability to overcome and adapt to crisis. The key word to that in this entire sentence, right, is failure, you know, which means that you cannot develop resilience without failure. And that is the first lesson you need to know. Failure is the foundation of resilience. Resilience can only be built through hardship. Character can only be forged in fire. You know, so when, when you guys, when I realized that you stay in a safe, nice box and you, you shelter yourself when you're so afraid to fail, when you're so afraid to try, you will never develop a resilience. And when I look back in my life, right, even though that period of depression, that period was the most difficult period of my life, the most mentally traumatic period of my life, now I consider it the biggest blessing, by far as the biggest blessing in my life because it helped me to develop the ability to be resilient. It helped me to gain new skills. It helped me to forge my character. And I'm just so grateful for, for the experience that I've actually had in the past. You know, my past pain became my present power. All right, so that's the first lesson. You know, embrace your failures because it helps you to develop your resilience. So moving on, the second takeaway I want to share with you guys is that failure is a feedback. Failure is nothing more than a feedback for improvement, for correction, for change. Albert Einstein once said that we can't solve our problems by using the same level of thinking in which we created those problems. We can't solve problems using the same thinking that we created those problems. Right? It makes sense. Now let me explain it for a bit. Right? So failure is like feedback. Your body is like a feedback mechanism. If you get sick, if you're coughing, what is it? What's the feedback? Your body is telling you that you need to do something. You need to change. If you are having high blood pressure, it's a feedback that your lifestyle habits are not good. 
right? You need to do some changes in order to reduce your blood pressure. Now, if you ignore those feedback, right, what's going to happen? You're going to get a heart attack. You know, life, it's gonna, your body is going to give you bigger feedback until you learn the lesson. You know, failure is the same thing. Failure is actually life's feedback system. It tells us that these are the things that we need to change in order to overcome that level of problems, overcome the level of thinking that we're at. So relating it to my experience, right, of course, depression is not a joke. Depression is also a physical illness like we discussed earlier. But what led me to that depressive episode was also my flawed thinking, right? The psychology and my thinking was that my worth and my value is solely dependent on my grades, my achievements. As long as I have that thinking, as long as I have that mindset of perfection, I will. I am setting myself up for, for depression because I will never reach it. So when I overcome that, that my challenge, right, I, it was really a time for me to look within myself and use that struggle, use that crisis as a feedback to change my thinking. So I hope you can understand this. Uh, failure is not a personal failure. If you fail, it doesn't mean that you fail as a person. All it means is that you haven't developed the skills to accomplish a task. Right? So treat failure like a feedback. Ask yourself, what are the lessons I can learn from it? What steps can I change to improve such that the same problem won't come back to me again? So the last and final lesson. Okay, finally, this podcast is ending. And the last and final lesson is most important and the most heartfelt message I want to share with you is no matter what you're going through, you might have gone through difficult times or and we are going to go through difficult times in the future. No matter how shitty you feel the challenge in front of you is and you sometimes feel that you will never get out of it, no matter how bad it gets, right? Just cling on to hope. Okay, cling on to whatever hope there is and hope is a very, very powerful word. I would say that it is one thing that I clung on to that helped me to recover. And I can tell you for a fact, right, there are moments in my recovery, moments in my struggle where I really felt that I looked out the window and I really felt that I would never be the same person again. That I believe with 150, 200, 300% certainty, right, that I'll be a shell of the person that I'll be. I'll just be a burden to everybody else. But all I did, right, a little voice inside of me, and I believe all of us have that voice inside of us, right, that just clings on to hope, just believes that you can just take it a step at a time, one day at a time, one thought at a time, one recovery step at a time. And when I build up on it slowly but surely, right, eventually you will overcome, eventually you'll recover. And when you look back, I promise you that the greatest pain that you experience right, will become your greatest gratitude, the greatest driver in your life. If you're struggling from anything, just remember that no matter how dark, no matter how long and dark the night is, on the next morning, the sun will always rise. Okay, sometimes we just feel that you know, the sun is never going to rise, that the night is so long. But believe me, if you cling on to it, um, it will eventually rise. Alright? So that concludes this first podcast. 
uh, future ones definitely going to be more brief and concise but I just hope that my sharing has benefited you in some way if you have a similar view relate to me if you have an interest you want to explore training public speaking youth work entrepreneurship business if any of these topics or mental health any of these topics relate to you feel free to just reach out to me feel free to drop me a pm on instagram and yeah just reach out to me i love to connect i love to hear your thoughts on this podcast and yeah pretty much that's about it guys so uh now we're having difficult times with the virus and everything so just stay safe stay resilient know that eventually these things were passed and i look forward to seeing you guys on future podcasts goodbye